Hi there. Do you want to write fiction that readers gush about, but you can't figure out how to fill in the beginning, middle, or end of your story? I can help with that. Do you struggle to flesh out character or plot or to stick with your story long enough to finish it? I can help with that. Once your book is written, are you totally clueless about marketing? Do you find yourself Googling how to market a book or how to make money on fiction? I can help with that. Welcome to the Prolific Author Podcast. You know you're meant to write fiction, but you can't seem to nail down the skills or processes that make it simple and repeatable, not to mention fun. So you wait around for the muse to show up, try to force your story into a template or outline, or take months, if not years, to discover your story. Plot twist, there's a better way. Hi, I'm Liesl, USA Today bestselling author, story psychologist, writing craft geek, Christian, and story clarity coach. After 10 years of trying to master fiction using the old industry standard writing advice, I still felt lost. I finally learned what fictional storytelling and the human template are really about. Humanity, emotional connection, and serving our readers by giving them relief through vicarious experience. Imagine learning how to flesh out your characters, plot, world, and theme with such definition and clarity that every story you ever write lands with readers and makes people go, wow, now there's an author. Imagine knowing how to drill down to the heart of your story to learn what it's really about and tell the unique story that only you can tell so that you can get more readers, more downloads, more royalties, and of course, more fiction writing success. This is the podcast for you. We are prolific authors. Welcome back to the Prolific Author Podcast. We are here with author Nicole York. How are you, Nicole? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Glad to have you here. Um, we were just kind of discussing your name, that your last name is York, and everybody thinks you're in New York, but you're actually not. You're in New Mexico. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I am down here in Albuquerque cooking in 100 degree weather. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> although I'm sure I might be willing to trade the dryness here for the humidity in New York. I think I'll take the right. dryness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I'm just north of you and I, I don't do the humidity very well either. That's what happens no. when you live in a dry state. You don't know how to handle it. <laughs> this is true. Great, great. Well, why don't you um, tell everybody who you are and what you write? Awesome. So my name is Nicole York and I write fantasy under the pen name Nicole McEwen, which is actually my dad's last name. Um, and I did that originally because I thought as a photographer that it would be confusing to people if they went to look me up as an author and found photos or vice versa. I didn't realize that trying to maintain two entirely separate identities would be such a headache as far as trying to keep track <laughs> of all the different social media and everything. But right. um, I decided to kind of combine those things because my whole my whole artistic career, authoring included, is built around telling stories. So in my visual art, I tell stories and in my narrative art, I tell stories. Um, but my whole goal is essentially just to build bridges back to fairyland, that back to a place where, you know, wonder still exists and anything is possible and we can believe the best or the most amazing things about ourselves without restrictions. So whether that's through novels, like the founding trilogy, which is, you know, the first, uh, my first kind of foray into the world of authoring or through photographs. That's my whole goal is just to help people get back there. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. So did you keep the two separate names or did you end up combining them? So I have combined them for my, um, so on my website and a lot of the social media, it just says Nicole creates because that's what I do. Um, and it made right. sense. 
But for the first books, because I began as Nicole McEwen, um, that is still currently the pen name that I'm using. So when people look me up, that's that's how they have to find me. Okay, gotcha. So you've got the separate for like books and then photography, but on social media, it's all the same. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's Nicole Creates or Nicole York everywhere. So okay, the pen name gotcha. is essentially just for like the books themselves. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, um, and maybe we should talk about that more because it is, it's difficult to have different pen names and different identities, but um, why don't you talk about, you know, how, you, how did you get into writing specifically and, and into fantasy? Sure. Um, so like I'm sure every author always says, I've been writing since I was a kid, um, but it's true. <laughs> I, I started trying to make stories and I, I wanted to live in a world where as small as insignificant as I felt, I could still secretly be somebody special. And growing up, um, you know, we moved a lot and there was a lot of kind of tumultuous um, activity in my home as a kid. And so mm -hmm. fantasy and movies like Legend or The Labyrinth or, you know, right. Willow, anything where it was like, oh, even small and insignificant people can go and slay the dragons or be somebody great. Um, I, I really was drawn to that. And even running off into the woods as a kid, if I could be outside, I was outside. And I always felt like, this would be the place where the fairies would find me at last. Um, <laughs> and so I, I wanted to write myself into that. My whole goal was always to, you know, take myself out of the real world and into a place uh -huh. where the magic could happen. And so I started that at a young age, fell deep and hard into romance novels when I was in a teen with a, like old ones too, like Joanna Lindsay and all of that stuff. Right. Started reading those hardcore and was like, mm, I want a romance like this. So I tried to write those for myself. And then once I was a mom, of course, a lot of that had to fall away. I didn't have time, and, but my kids got a little bit older and I wrote my first book, um, which I realized as I neared the end, I didn't have the chops yet to actually pull it off the way that I wanted to, to do the story justice. So I had to shelf that one. It's not shelved mm. forever, just until I'm good enough to write it. And then I started writing this trilogy. I started with the first book because... Ali, who is the main character, she's just one of those people who came into my head fully formed. Um, and I heard a, right. a line of dialogue from her in my head. I was like, who is this? This is a really interesting person. Um, what can I write about her? And so that kind of built that. And I think that was in 2013 or 2015, oh, around 2015, I guess. No, 2013. Yeah, I'm right. I, time <laughs> is irrelevant to me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know when it is. I don't even know what year it is. <laughs> the last two years, uh, you know, they just kind of threw everybody through a loop. They don't even really count, you know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> oh, that's great. So um, how you talked about hearing a line of dialogue from this character. So how do you go about, you know, creating character voice, I guess? I, I mean, you said she came fully formed into your head, but when you, you know, move forward in other stories, does that always happen? Or do you have a way of crafting character voice? That's a great question. So it always happens to some extent. So there's always at least a character or a few characters who just show up in my head being who they are. And then every now and then I'll get a character that I just, for some reason, I don't know them well enough to be able to hear their voice. And then I have to go figure them out. So for the villain in the first couple of books, I actually had to go write a short story about him because I, I couldn't get him. He just wasn't there. It's like, who is this person and where do they come from? And why are, why did they make the decisions they did that brought them to this place? 
So I went and I wrote a short story about them just to figure out who they were. And that really helped codify and solidify their voice in my head. And I think sometimes that happens just based on your kind of visual library. And I say visual because I'm a highly, as a, as a photographer and an artist, I'm a highly visual right. person. So I, I see them and I hear them, but um, we're constantly consuming what's around us and putting these bits and pieces into the library that we use to draw from when we make things. And so every now and then all those pieces come together the right way. And then every now and then they just kind of hit each other and fall apart and I don't know where they go and I have to piece them back together <laughs> through a story. Right, right. So if you you know, had one of these characters that you felt like you didn't know very well, how would you go through that process for them? So I first start by asking myself where they're from. What was the culture like? What was the uh, landscape like? Kind of economy is there just because an agrarian society is going to breed a different kind of speaker and a different kind mm -hmm. of person than an industrial society. Where right. are they at in their timeline? Have they hit something like an industrial revolution yet? Or have they had great breakthroughs in science? Or is this still very much, you know, a hunter-gatherer place? Knowing where they come from is a first really big step for me because that is going to influence things like the euphemisms they use and the idioms they use and how they speak to one another. Um, and then I start asking my things like, well, what is the culture like from a moral standpoint or, um, mm -hmm. you know, do they have certain taboos that this character is really going to have brought with them into their speech? Um, and then also once I have those things and I have a good picture of where the character is from, then I start asking myself, how did that affect them as a person? Are they the kind of person who, you know, felt really comforted and sheltered by their society and their their location? Or are they kind of a person who felt like an outcast and they didn't fit? So they're actively trying not to be the kind of person who comes from a place like that. And of course, that's right. a spectrum because there's anywhere in between. But yeah. when that happens, it really starts to form that person in my head. And then I know, okay, well, here's somebody who feels like their, their culture, their community let them down. And so they feel like a bit of an outcast. And so they've distanced themselves. And maybe those things show up in their speech a little bit unconsciously, but they're actively trying to separate themselves. And so that helps, you know, drive how I hear them in my head. And so that's really the start. Where do they come from? What was that place like? How did it affect them as a person? And that's kind of the, I guess, foundation of how I begin hearing their voice. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I think questions are the best way to kick out any element of your story. And that's part of what I teach. So I love that you have specific questions like that. And do you play it all with, um, you said, you know, sometimes, I know not all the characters, this will be true, but you have, you have one where they're trying to repress it, but it's coming through a little bit. Do you, do you purposely put that in at different points of the story where it comes through unconsciously for them? Yeah, for sure. And usually it has to do with um, a time when they are so engaged that they can't modulate themselves anymore. So often when people are angry, those things will right. start to show up. So maybe when somebody's angry, all of a sudden they use some euphemism that doesn't make sense for the way that they normally speak or their accent shows up or those kinds of things happen. If they're really excited or they can't kind of control or filter themselves anymore, that's usually if, if I have a character who's actively doing that, that's when those things tend to appear. Yeah, I love that. That's super fun to to play with and, and figure out what those moments are. So do you go through and come up with specific, like you said, um, 
you said euphemisms and, and you talked about accents, like words and phrases that they use that are specific to them. Oh yeah, always. Um, so, you know, often, so it, with the, the founding trilogy, the main character, Ali, she's a very contemporary person. And so it's really, and she's from the West Coast, which I'm from the West Coast. So it's really easy right. to, to make her speak in a way that's believable. But for the characters who aren't, that's where knowing where they're from really makes a difference. So like, are they from a place where a lot of fishing analogies are going to be, you know, used or um, right. if they, if they had to have an exclamation or if they needed to swear, is that going to sound very much like the kind of swearing I would do? Or is that going to say something like mother of the goddess, you know, like how, how, right. how are they going to form those kinds of things? So no, that's another time where knowing where they come from really helps me give them those, um, and then just knowing the character. So one character, Sonia, she's one of those characters who has very much distanced herself from the place that she used to be. But there's still elements um, where she's tr tried to reclaim her identity in a way. And so when she, she has certain words and phrases that she'll say often or a way of speaking that's very kind of lazy and rolling and she'll say darling and things like that. And so, <laughs> you know, the way that she speaks is... Um, informed by where she comes from and who she is but also when you hear her use these words the more you get to know her and understand the way that she speaks the more you can tell when she's using them as almost camouflage um, to, to sound like she doesn't care or convince herself that she doesn't care when right. that becomes a red flag and you're like oh she said that thing she must be upset about something right right yeah that's I awesome. think that helps yeah yeah. So have you, have you, um, what has been the response you've gotten? Have you had a lot of people tell you that they're picking up on these things and that they love your stories because of it? Yeah. One of the main, one of the main pieces of feedback that I get from my readers is that they really connected to the characters. In fact, if it takes them a little while to connect with Allie, because she is kind of a, a brash, sarcastic type of person, um, they will tell me how much they love. They're like, it was the side characters that kept me in things long enough <laughs> to fall in love with the main character or they were so well-drawn is usually, you know, kind of the feedback that I get from that. And I think that's because they are super distinct in my head and I can't right. hear them in anything other than their own voice. Once I know them and their way of speak, they exist, you know, I can, I can see them, I can hear them speak. And so it's difficult to, to mistake one for the other, I think right. at that point. And readers definitely seem to pick up on that. Good. Yeah. And I think especially for new authors, that's, that's one problem that a lot of newbie authors have is the very first thing they write, all the characters sound the same. So this is almost like a step-by-step -step for how to make sure that your characters do not sound the same and that they can, the reader can tell who it is, even if you don't name them right away. For sure. And I think oftentimes when you're, when you're just beginning many writers will write in their own voice. So they'll write the dialogue as if they would say it, as if I was the one right. who was going to say it. Um, and it really takes a little bit of an exercise in visualization and like character study to separate those people into their own things. And I think movies are really great for this, for anybody who you know would take the time to study movies and just notice those differences in how writers have been able to characterize the way that people say things and then how the actor does that again like Anthony Hopkins is right. fantastic right nobody speaks like him he has lots of pauses for emphasis and he has a lot of subtext in the way he says words and if you if you can study things like that and then kind of transmute that into your head for your characters even if you maybe start by replacing your characters with actors that you love 
even mm-hmm. that could probably help to go, well, how would they say this thing? Not how would I say this thing? Right, right. And so do you spend a lot of time doing these visualization or you'd almost call them auditory, like hearing the voice in your head? I'm a huge, so I'm a complete movie nerd. And so I, I love movies and they deeply influence the way that I, I think and hear and see people. But also as a visual artist, I think I'm one of those either, you could say it's either a blessing or a curse, but I can see (laughs) things very, very clearly in my head. And so that means that all of my worries get expanded to like gargantuan proportions, right? (laughs) But also all of the things I see are just really vivid. And so it's difficult to see somebody for who they are, the way that they dress, the way that they hold themselves and then not hear them. So I think, um, so fun little piece of science, your brain has a really difficult time telling the difference between a vividly imagined fantasy and reality. And Mm -hmm. so this is obviously like, this is a technique that professional athletes use a lot in order to practice when they can't actually practice. And they've even been able to, to find differences in muscle mass between people who do really good deep visualization and people who don't athletes who don't. And so you can improve your muscle memory and all of that kind of stuff. And then the same thing is true when you imagine these characters, the more clearly you see them, the more clearly they interact with one another in your head and all of those things. Then of course that translates audio in a way you hear them more clearly and they just become a lot more real. So at that point, it's hard not for them. It's hard for them not to be individual, I guess. Yeah. Did that answer the question? Yes, no, it did. It did. There's, there's so much to unpack there, but I think that's fabulous. I I mean, I have my thoughts going in a bunch of different directions. I mean, on the one hand, we're giving everyone permission to sit and visualize their characters and maybe sit and watch Netflix. Um, (laughs) But um, the other thing is, I think it also comes back to detail. We know when it comes to description and showing, not telling and all of those things we're told to do, it's all about the details. And so I was just thinking that it's, it's so much easier to hear a character voice, like you were saying, um, if you just say, oh, this is an elderly doctor type versus this is an elderly doctor type that speaks like Anthony Hopkins and pauses here and there and has all these mannerisms and dresses this way. I mean, it's just a whole different ball game when you, you, when you picture the details like that. For sure. And I think you hit on something that's so important too, because a lot of people will make the mistake of thinking that character voice is just what the character says. And it's not Mm. character voice is how a character represents themselves and interacts with the world. And so we are the ones who interpret character voice, right? Like as the reader, we are the ones who interpret that. And so in order to make that dialogue representative of the character, you have to know who they are. And so like going with your, your doctor example, um, is this a doctor who is arrogant, overconfident, highly educated, or is this Mm -hmm. a doctor who came, you know, worked their way into med school, living off of crackers and comes from, you know, the wrong side of the tracks and has a lot of empathy to people or for people. And then of course that's going to influence, you know, is this somebody whose mind is always running a million miles a minute and they speak in quick choppy sentences and they get distracted by their own conclusions, or is this somebody who's highly methodical and the way that they speak reflects, you know, very carefully chosen words and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, right. like once you have that picture, and if if the picture in your head walks in with their lab coat all rumpled and, you know, their stethoscope hanging off of one shoulder and looking like they haven't slept in days, how does that person sound as opposed right. to somebody who walks in very neat and organized and, ha- you know, what's the difference right. there? And like seeing those things just really, really helps form how they would then express themselves, I think. Yeah. 
as, as authors, we almost need like a, a degree in psychology to, you know, figure all this stuff out. So um, a couple of technical questions for you that I, that I thought of earlier when you were, you know, talking about the technique. Um, when you, for example, you know, do something where, like you were saying, you, they, they're trying to repress something and then it comes out in a moment of, of passion or high emotion. Do you draw attention to that in the narrative of your book? Like, do you have another character actually observe that for the audience or do you just allow the audience to pick up on it on their own? It's interesting because I know before we got to do this interview, we talked a little bit about trusting the audience and like, yes. and how do we make those decisions? So sometimes I will hang a lantern on it. I think if the, if the character who's listening to them speak is noticing it. So I guess in some ways to answer that question, in some ways it depends on point of view. So okay. if I'm yeah. writing first person and my, the first person character is getting to know these people, then that character may notice and say, oh, she's never said that before. She's really mad. Like, you know, right. maybe they would notice that. Or if it is the character themselves that is speaking, I may just let the reader clue into that as the story progresses. And I'm definitely one of those writers who I like to kind of dribble in exposition as the story goes for backstory. And so right. I may not say anything right away and then okay. mention later on, oh, this happened to me at some time and, you know, in my past and then allow those breadcrumbs to kind of form a bread ball where the reader goes, ah, I got it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think I, I was kind of thinking that it would probably depend on the character. Um, what was I going to say? I, I almost think you could, if you had enough foresight on your story and were planning, it would be interesting to almost show it independent of the character, like show someone else from the wrong side of the track speaking that way. And then, you know, but, but there is something to be said for letting the reader figure it out. One thing that I think I kind of harp on it a little bit, but that I think Hollywood doesn't always do very well is they don't trust their audience as much as they should. And I think with readers, I mean, our readers, of course we need to make it very easy for them to understand. You know, we're always talking about making the story very accessible and the writing really good and everything. But we also need to trust them because our readers are looking for patterns and they're looking for things to connect. So how do you, do you have any kind of rules or the, the way that you handle that, you know, trying to get yourself to trust the reader more or less or, you know, talk to us about that. Yeah, I think, I think that's always a difficult thing because as the writer, we know everything about the story. And so mm -hmm. it can be a difficult to balance what things we know and, and remove ourselves from that situation be like, okay, well, the audience doesn't know this. So right. um, how do I do that? And I think actually, I think a writer who does this really brilliantly, really, let me say that one more time, really <laughs> brilliantly is Neil Gaiman. Um, he okay. absolutely assumes that the audience is going to figure it out. He leaves a lot to the imagination and he never holds your hand. So there are absolutely times when reading his books and I'm like, wait a minute, why is this? This isn't who, ha. And then, you know, 10 pages or two chapters or whatever, I'll have enough context where I can put things together. Right. And I think that that's one of the things people really enjoy about his work is that he's mm -hmm. not talking down to them. However, that does, like you said, absolutely mean that some readers are not going to find his work accessible. So I think that's right. a question we have to ask ourselves as far as do I want to make this as readable by everybody as possible? Or do I understand that my audience consists of a, a really kind of niche group of people and I have to make the assumption that they're going to clue into these context clues like um, if we include a lot of uh, 
current, you know, pop culture type of references? Are they going to pick these things up? And does that matter? Right. Or do I need to make sure that I, you know, don't include that? But then also, um, maybe hopefully to like bring this whole rambling thought together is always, I think, make it easier first and then go back and ask how important it is for somebody to follow this clearly. So like if I know my audience and I know that I'm shooting for a wide group of people to make it super easily accessible, I write it all blatantly and then I go, okay, is this something that, that they need to know or have I built the context clues into this well enough that they're still going to get it? Um, and I think that's when beta readers really come in or even alpha readers really come in and show how important they are because they're going right. to let you know if you did it or not. But if you err on the <clears throat> side of trusting the reader, you will absolutely get folks who are upset and feel like you were hiding things from them or like you weren't making it easy. And if you don't trust the reader, you are absolutely going to get people who said <laughs> they were holding my hand. So yeah. I think you have to err on the side of what what feels the most natural to do and just recognize it's not going to be for everybody because right. you can't, you know, yeah. that's the great part about having so many authors is we get to pick and choose the ones who write for right. us. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, no, I, I love everything you just said. You explained it really thoroughly. And so like what it comes down to is the answer as with all things in writing is, well, it depends. <laughs> There's just not an umbrella, you know, answer that's going to, um, apply to everyone. And, and you actually answered my next question. I was going to ask you if you had a critique group or beta readers or anything. So do you put all of your work through people like that then? When I can. Yeah. Every now and then um, life will get super busy and it'll be difficult to get my beta readers on board. Or I might be working with a new group of beta readers and they just have the every intention of reading and then life happens and they can't right. show up and I'm on a deadline. And so at that point, um, you know, I have hired actually beta readers in the past. There were a couple of folks I have worked with that were really fantastic and worked and, and did that for really reasonable rates. So in a way it was kind of like having, um, editor light, you know, like light version that was, right. that was helpful. Yeah. Um, almost like having a developmental editor in a way. So that those have been really handy. So anytime I can, I absolutely want to get folks on board beta reading because not only do they let me know when I'm doing something wrong, but they let me know when I'm doing things right, which is fantastic right. because right. they might say, oh no, like I, I didn't think he was that kind of person. And I'm like, I'm about to fool you. And this is exactly what I want you to feel right here. So later on, you will be like, ah, <laughs> um, so yeah, anytime I can, I, I absolutely bring them on board. And if I can get my hands on an editor, then I want that. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And do you have, when you are, are doing your beta readers, do you have certain questions that you ask them to sort of guide their responses or do you just let them tell you whatever? I essentially just tell them, don't worry about things like misspellings or little things like that. You are not here to be my line editor. You don't have to worry about that. Skip right over the top of it. I'm looking for big story things. So were you bored? Did the pacing like drag you down? Did you like this character? Were you surprised? Like, give me just your feedback as you have it. And I usually right. do this in Google Docs. And so I'll have a, a doc specifically for each reader. So it might say something like the founding war, Becca. 
And then that is the link she has. And then she can leave me comments as she feels things. And then at the very end, I just write, you know, thank you so much for telling me what you think. Um, if you have any final thoughts, like overall thoughts on the story itself, did it work? Did it not work? Did you have a fa your favorite character? Is there any characters that you felt like just didn't work or whatever? I have, I leave a spot for that, but I, I do try to prep them in the initial email when I send them the link to everything. Don't worry about things like spelling, focus on big story things like characters, how they made you feel, all that stuff. And that has seemed to help so far. I really haven't had too many people who, um, who, fell off the wagon there although people still do want to correct spelling they can't help themselves they'll be like right, there's a yeah. comma here <laughs> like, you want to waste your time doing that that's I guess that's on you but and see I've kind of had the opposite problem I haven't done a whole lot of intentional you know with with beta readers in the way you have so it's totally that I just need to do it but I do have a critique group that does that for me so I haven't really you know necessarily needed it but most of the time when I do a final beta reader pass they almost exclusively correct my grammar and um, so I'm going, no, no, you guys can do other things. You can tell me about how you felt or plot things. And it's like, it's hard for me to get them to actually give that kind of feedback. So it's kind of funny, but yeah, I, I think it's totally just that I haven't prepped them. So that's interesting. Um, well, great. I mean, this is so much fun and you're obviously a very conscientious author, um, which I think mostly comes with experience. You know, early authors, they, they kind of tend to give me really big answers about things and they'll be like, I don't know, you know, and things like that, but you are not that way, you know, your stuff. So, I mean, how, how many books do you have written now? So I have, um, my third novel will be launching on the 26th. And then I, I wrote, so I used NaNoWriMo to get the first draft up of a new series that I'm working on. So if we're talking about like purely finished works, even if they're not published, then six if we're talking about, um, you know, finished published works, there are two out and a third on the way. Um, however, I think it's really important for me to note for folks who are listening, I'm also a freelance writer. I've been a freelance writer for years. And so of course that helps. Although those are right. nonfiction things I, you know, wrote for photography magazines and all that kind of stuff. So that is all very much, you know, nonfiction writing, but right. it's still, invests you in the world enough that you know you you pick things up along the way so yeah for sure it still contributes to your 10,000 hours of writing right. that you need yeah for sure for sure well great I mean what advice would you have to writers who are just starting out and and trying to you know make a career out of writing stories Ooh, prepare to live in the suck for a while <laughs> um, don't, don't start writing under the assumption that you're going to make a whole bunch of money right away, or that it's going to become a full-time career right away. As with any artistic endeavor, it's a, it is a game of who can last the longest. And mm. if you last long enough, you're almost guaranteed to get something right at some time, but right. it does require that grit. Um, and also, if you want to be a full-time author, you need to ask yourself if you also want to be a business person. Because, right. you know, as indie authors, we're running the whole ship. And that requires us to be a marketing person and a bookkeeping person and, 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 and. Mm -hmm. And while we may get a few of those things taken off our plate, if we go with traditional publishing, you still have to be willing to be in the query trenches for a long time. And you still have to right. be willing to, you know, you're going to still have to market yourself and you're going to need to keep your own books and all of that still applies. So if you want to be a writer for more than just a hobby, 
be prepared to be a business person also and learn as much about that as you can because I made the same mistakes I think probably many of us make with our first book where we don't market it enough and we don't know enough really to market it well. And then you learn things along the way and those books are always going to be valuable, but you have to be willing to, to fail a lot at first and to be on the bottom of the pile and to sometimes feel bad about yourself and <laughs> compare yourself to other authors and go, oh, but they're here and I'm here. Um, long enough that you kind of slowly climb that ladder and edge your way up. It's worth it, but you you have to go into it knowing that that's part of the process so that you don't think there's something wrong with you. And I, I guess that's the biggest, the biggest thing maybe I would say is there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> this is part of your process. Your journey right. is not going to look like everybody else's journey, even though you might take bits and pieces of other people's processes and use them for your own. That doesn't mean you're going to end up in the same place they do at the same time. So let right. your journey be what it is. Don't feel bad. Embrace the fact that it's going to be a struggle and then just keep going. Because as soon as you get that first email or whatever from a reader who said, this changed my life or this made me cry, or I had a reader send me a, a picture of my book on their shelf. And it was like, look, there is Tolkien and Rothfuss and Orson Scott Card and my book. Aww. And like <laughs> that moment, you're like, that's it. That's, that's, now you know you're doing the yeah. thing you're supposed to do. Like it's the, it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So yes, thank you for that. That's that's such wise advice. I think um we do hear a lot in the indie author space about how we need to treat this like a business, but at the same time, it doesn't, I don't know that it always clicks for people. Like they just think, oh yeah, I know I do because I need to do ads and sell my book, but really we're building a business from the ground up. And so it's not any different than if you were opening a brick and mortar business, it's going to be a struggle. You're going to have to figure it out. You're an entrepreneur now. And it's, yeah, it's, I really, really loved the way that you framed that. So thank you for that. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find all of your books? Yes. So they can find first, uh, my website is just NicoleYork.com. So all of my books are listed on there with all their synopses and things, and they're all available on Amazon. It's Amazon exclusive right now. Um, I have the intention it used to be wide. I didn't have the time to keep track of everything. So it will be wide again, but for now it's all Amazon exclusive. And the last name is M-C-K-E-O-N. Um, I know McEwen is one of those names that it sounds one way and people always spell it some, some different <laughs> way, but just in case. Great, great. I will link those up in the show notes so that people can find you. And yeah, just uh, good luck with everything. And it sounds like you have a really promising career ahead of you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Before you go, if you found value in this episode, can you do me a solid and share it with other authors you think might benefit from it? Remember, the rising tide lifts all boats. Also, if you haven't yet, would you be willing to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts? It's the only way for me to know that you're enjoying the podcast and it helps Apple recommend it to other authors like you who might benefit from it. Finally, if you haven't already, hop over and join the prolific author community on Facebook. Inside, authors network, ask questions, and I often do teaching via Facebook Lives. Thank you so much for listening today. Happy story crafting this week. And remember, there is always a market for awesome.